0: in new york and on the web at dogmountainlodge.com and from listeners like you okay and it'll be a clear tonight slight chance of a stray shower thunderstorm otherwise mostly clear and cool overnight low down to 54 uh partly cloudy becoming mostly cloudy tomorrow with a high of 74 again this is radio catskill
1: Support for WJFF Radio Catskill comes from the River Reporter newspaper in Narrowsburg, New York, riverreporter.com. From the Women's Health Center in Homesdale, Hamlin, Waymart, Carbondale, and Lords Valley in Pennsylvania, physicians and certified midwives who deliver, the Women's Health Center is a Wayne Memorial Community Health Center, wmh.org.
2: Welcome to Sabrina Artel's Trailer Talk. I'll bring you all kinds of stories from all kinds of people. Whether it's a live public conversation and we're speaking from the kitchen table of my 1965 Beeline Travel Trailer, from the studios or on the streets, please sit back and enjoy the conversation right here this time every week. I'm so excited to share with you my guest for this episode. We are in Liberty, New York in the Sullivan County Catskills. I am sitting with Nathaniel Whitmore. He is our region's expert in identification and use of wild plants and mushrooms. He's an herbalist, a forager, a mushroom expert. He focuses on healing foods, on the medicine of the plant world, and so many other things. Truly, Nathaniel is a legend in these parts, as they say, so I'm very, very happy to be able to have this conversation.
0: This is uh, Nathaniel Whitmore.
2: Welcome, Nathaniel.
0: Thank you. Thank you for having me.
2: Let's begin with how you began this adventure with plants, with uh, medicinal herbs, with your own healing practice, and with this knowledge.
0: So I... Grew up in Damascus, Pennsylvania on a family farm. So I, I always go back to that upbringing as um, my starting point because you naturally learn about plants because you're making hay and growing in the things in the garden and out in the forest collecting firewood. And uh, so you uh, naturally learn about these things. And then um, I had um, interest... As a young teenager in uh, Native American uh, history and also in um, some spiritual ideas uh, like dream interpretation and uh, various things like that and that led me to be introduced to a man who uh, was quite well known in the area named Taterbug Tyler and uh, he was a uh, he was a a, a local folk healer, medicine man. He was a ginseng hunter and he started teaching me about wild foods and making maple syrup and picking different kinds of herbs. He's the one that got me started thinking about medicine because as a young person, I was relatively healthy. And um, what gets most people into this so-called alternative uh, medicine world is often some kind of sickness or something that that stimulates people to, to to go an alternate route. For me, it was kind of more organic. It's hard to pinpoint what it was, but uh, Taterbug's influence was, was kind of the starting point.
2: Nathaniel, Taterbug, I want to learn a little bit more about this teacher of yours. You mentioned <clears throat> ginseng hunting. So what is that is this around us here in the Catskills and the Upper Delaware region in the Northeast.
0: So often people are surprised to learn about American ginseng being here, but this was a a major region for American ginseng. Pretty much all of the Appalachian Mountain range is and or was Basically, it was over-harvested, and then even more so than that, the habitat destruction uh, really did a, a, a number on the uh, ginseng stands in the wild, so it's, it's pretty much rare. And then the deer browse it down so that it's not really able to recover. But at one point, ginseng was the number one export from the United States of America. It was a big part of the fur trade and other resource extraction. It's such an important medicine that it it climbed to uh, at its peak of export it was it was number one, but because of greed and the normal kinds of things that take down businesses and um, and these kinds of things, basically, people started harvesting at the wrong time and adulterating and, uh, and the whole market kind of fell from that. And then the environmental destruction that followed made it so that there's not enough really to pick. It's, it's protected, now it's protected by international trade law.
2: And you're also describing colonialism, you're describing uh, extractive I- industry destruction.
0: My main interest in regards to herbs is in using wild plants. So, my feeling is that, um, you know, right now, most of the research still today, although it's not well known, but most of the active research into herbal medicine is by pharmaceutical companies that are trying to find chemicals that can then be copied. Uh, to me, some of the most important research is to look back into the history. And understand how the native americans were utilizing the plants and and also how they were conducting themselves in a way that was sustainable
2: just looking out the windows here right there are so many you already pointed out this plant that was growing on our way to the kitchen table which is what
0: this is called gold thread i tease those roots out of the mossy ground there and um, so what we have here on the table is a small plant with some long almost thread-looking yellow roots. Its uh, scientific name is Coptis. In the earlier days of this country it was known as canker root because it was a well-known canker sore remedy. It is uh, related chemically and medicinally to the uh, herb golden seal into many other herbs which we classify as berberine containing yellow antimicrobials. So berberine is named after barberry which is that shrub that we also saw um, right outside the door and which maybe people have been seeing a lot lately because it's one of the first green shrubs to come alive in the forest and it's also one of the most invasive plants. So it is uh, widespread, and oftentimes people plant it in their landscape and maybe maroon or variegated uh, cultivated forms. But um, berberine is a yellow substance that's very bitter. It's very antimicrobial, uh, meaning antibacterial, antiviral, antifungal, and um, to the best of my knowledge these herbs are pretty much the strongest antimicrobials that are widely available in our area so um of course the coptis isn't used much today because it's so small although there's, there's a related species used in chinese medicine that is also one of the top antimicrobials in chinese medicine that even though it's still called gold thread the rhizome is much thicker and more fleshy
2: And another plant you had me taste, it was absolutely delicious. I've passed it thousands of times and not even noticed it. Can you describe that one?
0: Uh, Yeah, that's called toothwort. And um, I guess uh, at first glance, some people are worried that it's poison ivy because it superficially resembles that, being that it it has the three leaves. And toothwort refers to the tooth. The, the large teeth on the on the leaflets. Uh and then it has a, a mustardy horseradishy pungent flavor. And uh yeah, it can we just nibbled on the leaves to get that flavor, but the root, the the flavor will be even a little more crisper and cleaner, more of that pure horseradish kind of taste because the, the leaf has more of the, the the green stuff in it and adds to the flavor. And um, yeah, that can be, um, of course, it, it usually only occurs in small amounts in the wetlands like that, but um, the flavor is so strong, you could always pick just a tiny bit and flavor a salad or a sandwich or something like that.
2: I'm speaking with Nathaniel Whitmore, mm-hmm. and he is our region's expert. We're in the Northeast, in the Catskills and the Delaware Valley River Basin, an expert in identification and the use of wild plants, and mushrooms, and also a wild crafter. What I'm wondering, Nathaniel, is because this work, this knowledge, this Mm. study of yours is is something you've dedicated your life to and are continuing to, and it's part of, of an overall well-being with our relationship with the planet Earth, with this land around us, and with traditions, which are ancient ones... You've acknowledged the indigenous traditions and the depth of that knowledge. I'm just wondering, though, how do you frame this for us so it's not just kind of um, people somehow, you know, going into the woods and taking things and it being a continuation of just consumption and how you would describe it for us about your own relationship with this wild world around us?
0: When I first started to read about wild edibles. There is a book, one of the first I encountered, Peterson's Guide, the well-known nature series, Peterson's Guides. In the foreword, the author, or authors, were discussing how people will mention that maybe there's an environmental concern with the harvesting of wild plants. And they brought up that it really wasn't wild crafters picking a few herbs or wild edibles that was ultimately harming the population of those plants. I stuck with that basic standpoint for a long time. Uh, More recently, the last several years, I've spent a lot more time uh, going into New York City as well as other urban areas, but especially from here to New York City, I've seen I've seen a lot of different places and considered the plant populations and, and what's happening. And um, and then also I've recently returned to my family's farm after being gone for uh, many years. And even in my short lifetime, I, I can acknowledge how many things are lost. That farm is still one of the more lush places I know, but it's nowhere near as lush as it was when I first started learning about wild edibles. So only in recent years, I returned to that thinking about one of those first uh, issues that was brought up, which I kind of just formed my stance on and stuck with it. But now I'm looking at it again and thinking, actually, it is a problem. Here all this time, I've been teaching people to to go and and pick these things. And now there's places where these things aren't aren't there anymore. Mm -hmm. And of course, uh, in general, uh, I also... um, appreciate your question touching on this uh, consumerism aspect because um, obviously in so many ways we, we're thinking what what's in it for me what can I go out there and get and and you know the the excitement of ginseng and or the excitement of these mushrooms sometimes that that's so contagious that uh, people without even really understanding what ginseng is or how it's used, they 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 want to pick it because it's just so exciting to find it. Yeah, so that's doing a number on things. Still, the bulldozers and uh, urban spraw, uh obviously, you know, nothing's growing where the parking lot now stands. But uh, I am also concerned about the over-harvest. Mm-hmm. Um, to me, personally, a lot of this has to do with, um, uh, like, the local food things. Um, issues, and just living close to the land, and being aware of what is available, working with what's available. I've had a couple conversations recently with folks on the subject of cooking. And to me, cooking is is an art. And when you think about it, cooking goes back to the simple process of taking what you have and making something that's delicious and health-promoting and nourishing from it. So cooking isn't following a recipe and if you look at a good professional chef they're not following recipes i mean maybe they're checking in on things or maybe sometimes ingredients need to be precise but in general uh cooking is an art of transforming what you have into something that is what you need that can that can nourish your life and uh today we have uh so many resources wrapped up in the um growing of foods out of season Just think of the energy put into refrigeration of vegetables just to get those vegetables to the store and then maintain them in the store. And then everybody brings them home and has them in their own vegetable. Meanwhile, all these plants are just going to waste. We do have a lot of invasive weeds. My major mission of mine at this point, which has always been the case, but I've noticed looking back that people aren't really catching on to the importance of learning to use invasive plants like here we have barberry the strongest antimicrobial we have and nobody seems to really know about it but it's everywhere and then japanese knotweed you know there is there's food use there's medicine use but even for
2: lime right with the knotweed that's
0: one of the uh that's one of the the special areas where Mm -hmm. japanese knotweed is particularly used for lime treatment
2: which is absolutely fascinating because as you say we it is invasive and it's causing many problems along stream banks and choking them out and that sort of thing but also we have it here and if we could utilize it for our own well-being that would be a win-win all around and the barberry yes i mean i can attest to that i mean i didn't have So many of these plants uh, 25 years ago, as I have now, and they're thorny, they're hard to take out. That's a fascinating point, I think, that you're making about your interest in the invasives Mm -hmm. and how we can use them and that they really do have medicinal aspects.
0: I'd like to say another thing about invasives, which I'm not sure if the listeners know exactly um, what this subject is about, I know some people are very passionate about the problems with invasive plants, which are plants that are introduced into an, a non-native area and then spread wildly and aggressively. But um, we we get overly focused on invasive plants as being problems, uh, but really the plants are not the problem. And one thing that I'm trying to point out is that if the invasives are not there, in some cases, there's not going to be anything there because the native plant populations are already gone. Ah. So um, we have to understand that nature doesn't like vacuums. So if you take those invasive plants out, what's going to fill in? The reason they filled in is because the native plants were taken out. They weren't just introduced into a healthy environment and went invasive. They were introduced into a destroyed environment, and they went rampant because of the conditions that we, that people left the environment in. But anyway, we could go on and on.
2: Yes, and I definitely i want, I, I want to continue this conversation. Absolutely. I still have, to, though, for this episode, some more questions I want to ask or just to discuss with you. So mushrooms seem to have become the celebrity of, of, of the plant world right now and you're an expert in mycology and mushrooms. So I'm wondering if you can share your own interest in them, what you've discovered and some of the mushrooms that surround us here. And and why you think they become the celebrity of the moment.
0: Uh, well, that's uh that's a, a a big uh topic. Um but mushrooms are um uh, mushrooming into uh <laughs> popularity there's some documentaries that have been going around and and knowledge in general is growing it's it's their time for a number of reasons but it, you know if you look back at um other cultures a lot of what we're experiencing now is actually not anything new america is waking up to growing mushrooms but shiitake mushrooms have been grown for 2000 plus years so in some ways that's nothing new it's just it's just a novelty for us good point which by the way i just picked some today from logs so it's a wonderful thing to grow shiitake they 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 fruit all different times they love the cold weather and uh it's it, it's exciting cause, um and then the other i think uh another thing about mushrooms is um americans in general were considered to be um inheritors of the fungal phobic british culture So mycologists will put cultures into fungal loving or fungal fearing categories. And um, it goes back to, you know, survival times, the whole feast and famine thing. You know, sometimes mushrooms have saved cultures during times of famine. The rains came in and flooded the fields, but then mushrooms showed up and they still had something to eat. But then in certain regions, there's a lot of poisonous mushrooms and people... It saw so many people uh, make mistakes and, and die or get really sick that they developed a fear. And America kind of inherited this uh, fear, which really came from a lack of understanding because there's so much to learn. But now we're starting to learn, and, and we're starting to learn at a very fast rate at the same time that mycology is blossoming in so many different ways, like mycoremediation, using mushrooms to clean up uh toxic areas and using mushrooms medicinally Uh, we have many medicinal mushrooms in in these forests like uh, we're looking at all these hemlock trees around here and especially right by the water um, we tend to find the uh, mushroom called reishi or the uh, American name is usually something like lacquered polypore um, or, or varnish shelf mushroom because it looks kind of like a lacquered piece of wood a maroon color it's a shelf mushroom, which is a tend to be a large, kind of tougher mushroom growing off the side of a tree. So they grow on these hemlocks, and they're actually one of the most revered medicinal mushrooms. If you went to a Chinatown herb shop, you'd see a whole wall on, in some places of different kinds of reishi mushrooms.
2: Incredible. Yes, I've seen what you're describing on these trees right right outside this window. Yeah. So that's exciting.
0: I should also mention that we're also coming into morel mushroom season. This is not the best area for morels, but there are spots where they're abundant. So sometimes people are surprised to learn that, that they're here. Um, in a couple more weeks, they'll, they'll get started. And uh, and there's other mushrooms that, that come with them.
2: I'm just wondering, um, before we conclude... If there's something you want to share with our listeners about the work that you do, maybe a favorite uh, sort of uh, adventure you have, where you discover something in the woods or out there in the wilds, or or just a message you want to send us off with.
0: Um, as far as uh, my work, I um, mostly I work with the principles and according to Chinese medicine, but I focus on local plants, which there's a lot more crossover than people may guess between what plants we have and what's utilized in Chinese medicine. but uh, my you know I, I like to make everything um, fresh and I like to uh, use the local plants as they are, but even when I make the products, I make them from plants that I'm harvesting. And what I've realized, like say the barberry, for instance, I use that as a teaching point a lot when I'm teaching about medicine making, because by making a barberry preparation yourself, you can actually pay attention to quality in a way that a big company can never afford to do, because you're going to pull those roots out and you're going to scrape the outer layer of bark off. And it's a little bit tedious, but... With a day's work, it's such a you, you, it's such a potent medicine that you make enough tincture and or if you're going to dry it or whatever it is, you can put away enough for the whole year. And it's actually very stable, so it lasts for years. So it's really not that much work. Um, but if if you were to buy barberry from the store or from a, a product, um, it'd be made with the whole roots, which means that the woody part, like with these trees, you know, the, the trunk is all wood, and then the the medicine is usually that that bark layer. So you have the outer bark and you have the wood and then that little bit of uh, active tissue there. Well, for the big company, they're gonna chop up that whole woody root so you have 90% inert material where if you make it yourself, you scrape off the part that you're supposed to use. So you can actually, you're making a better product by doing it yourself, way cheaper. Herbal products are often overpriced and it's, it's a big problem because people are spending a lot of money but then they might not even be buying a good product and they don't know how to assess it. So that's why I try to teach people how to use plants that are local, how to understand their their qualities and how to best prepare them. And that's basically my, that's what I do and that's my message and that's what I think is the, the best way to use herbal medicine.
2: And Nathaniel, is there something you've learned from being in the wild? from the plants from nature that's surrounding you
0: I guess um I like to I I feel like I learn a lot all the time about the uh plants and about nature and about about everything and I think that's another important that is another important message here is is and it's not about um just going out and using the plants like you were saying before but it's about appreciating the, uh, the plants for their beauty and their, their part in the environment and how that reflects so many things in life. You know, even the, the play of the seasons, the, the unfolding of the spring blossoms and, 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 you know, all these things are just, it's, it's a deep part of our psychology and it's just, you know that's that's how uh, our minds and and how every, how our understanding of the world comes to be, and now today we have everybody glued to screens all day long, and 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 it's like nature is something that you get a picture of on your cell phone or something. There's a concept in old uh, Japan that's translated as uh, uh, education for pregnancy, and uh, it's the idea is that you should go out. And observe something uh, beautiful in the natural world uh, every day. Because uh, when you when you're nourishing that life in utero, you want the to, to the, the mind to be in a good place. So you might read uh, religious or good quality literature to have a, a like a elevated material. And then also you want to acknowledge the the wonder of nature every day. And then there's another concept in Japan, the forest bathing, which has been popular recently, kind of trends into the the press here and there and but they're just looking at how healthy it is to take some time, like the stop and smell the roses idea, stop and look at things, appreciate things, and that's how we learn from nature. But if we don't participate and be part of nature, then nature is that external object.
2: That object that we can use, kill, extract from. Oh, it's just been wonderful. I've been speaking with Nathaniel Whitmore. He is an expert in identification, the use of wild plants and mushrooms. He's a wild crafter and many more things. To learn more about Nathaniel, please visit NathanielWhitmore.com, W-H-I-T, you can check out his plant walks, his apprenticeships, plant and mushroom tours. I had a micro tour, and I am just so thrilled by what I discovered with Nathaniel. And I hope, Nathaniel, I'll be able to join you for a mushroom and a plant tour as the season builds. And um, I just want to say, please, there's so many things that we can learn from you, Nathaniel, and I will never look at my barberry (laughs) plant again in the same way, knowing that it has those, those healing, those medicinal aspects. I should say the same thing with the other plants that I passed so frequently that you've shared with me, have these important qualities. I'm, I'm going to chew on these roots here of these <laughs> these golden threads. But anyway, I want to thank Nathaniel for joining me at the kitchen table, NathanielWhitmore.com. Thank you so much.
0: Thank you so much. I appreciate the uh, opportunity. Thank you so much for having me. Thank you for listening.
2: From the kitchen table, out on the road, I'm Sabrina Artel. Thanks for joining me for Sabrina Artel's Trailer Talk. The music for the show, Patti Smith, People Have the Power. Trailer Talk is produced by Sabrina Artel. For more information, please visit TrailerTalk.net. Special thanks to WJFF Radio Catskill and the numerous people who have donated their time, resources, and conversations to make Trailer Talk possible. Thank you all who joined me in these conversations. I'm Sabrina Artell. Safe travels.
0: This is uh, Todd from Highland Park, New Jersey. I listen to Bullseye with Jesse Thorne because I love his enthusiasm. I'm Jesse Thorne. This week, singer
2: songwriter Liz Fair talks about her new album Soberish, plus Brat Pack Heartthrob, Andrew McCarthy. That's on the next Bullseye from MaximumFun.org
0: and NPR.
3: Thursday afternoon at 2 on Radio Catskill.
0: Radio Catskill. Public radio for the Catskills in Northeast Pennsylvania.
2: Welcome to Sabrina Artel's Trailer Talk. I'll bring you all kinds of stories from all kinds of people. Whether it's a live public conversation and we're speaking from the kitchen table of my 1965 Beeline Travel Trailer, From the studios or on the streets, please sit back and enjoy the conversation right here this time every week. My guest today is Laura Chavez-Silverman from the Outside Institute. She lives in the Upper Delaware River Valley region of upstate New York, and I am looking forward to having you join me here virtually at my kitchen table on zoom of trailer talk. So welcome to the show,
3: Laura. Thank you so much. It's lovely to be here with you.
2: So we're in the middle of August. It's 2020. We are in the Catskills. We are in the middle of a pandemic. I'm wondering if you could share with our listeners why you began the Outside Institute, what that is about. You are a naturalist and you have had a mission to introduce and educate people about our natural world.
3: Yes, or as I'm now trying to get people to think of it as the world, because really there is only one world and we all belong to it, and it's the natural world. I began taking a market interest in this region when I moved up here as a weekender in 2005 I grew up in Northern California, and I was surrounded by the redwood forest and lived near the ocean, and I had a very nature-focused childhood, being outside a lot, but I had become disconnected from that way of living after being in New York City for about 20 years. And when I found um, a little weekend cottage up here in Sullivan County, it was sort of a reawakening for me. And eventually my husband and I went back and forth for about four years. And then we moved up full time to live in our little cottage in Eldred. Up until then, and then increasingly, I just began observing, because when you live in close proximity to the trees and to the countryside, you're much more greatly affected by the seasons, the weather, all of the plants and trees, the flora, fauna, and fungi with which you're surrounded. And once you begin to start observing, it's almost like a a creaky door opens and you peer through and then tumble down the rabbit hole into this whole other world that, that you're actually a part of. And that resonates deeply with you. So to be perfectly honest, wild mushrooms were kind of my gateway drug. I'm a cook and I was very interested in finding wild mushrooms that were edible. That kind of lured me out into the woods on my own on the quest. And as I tell a lot of people who are interested in foraging now, and that's practically everybody it seems, you can't really forage for one thing. Because if you go out with too much of an agenda, you're certain to be foiled. And also because every one thing is connected to all the other things. So in order to find wild mushrooms, you have to understand which trees they grow with. So you have to learn to identify trees. And so you get to know the total ecosystem. And that's what happened to me. Um, as the years went on, I fell in love with mushrooms, sure, but trees and ferns and really everything that I encountered. And I learned from friends and neighbors in this area that they liked to go outside, but they didn't really feel comfortable, many of them. And those that did feel comfortable didn't understand what they were seeing. And so there was a big information gap and a comfort gap. And I decided that, although I felt like my knowledge base was pretty shallow, because surely this is the work of a lifetime to get to know everything that's here. I felt like I had maybe enough to begin to share with people to at least be able to encourage them to get acquainted with their surroundings. And so in 2017, I founded the Outside Institute with that mission. It's been pretty much um, a wonderful venture for me. It's, It's not my primary venture. I would like it to be, but I still work as a creative director. Uh, with clients all over the world, but uh, the outside institute is a labor of love for me. I've met and spent time with so many interesting people in this area because of it.
2: How wonderful, Laura! Thank you for sharing some of that. You spoke of the mushrooms being your gateway into this world, as you described flora, fauna, and what was the other thing? Fungi. fungi. So or fungi, as some people say. Fungi. So. What is here? What kind of flora and fauna and fungi? If you could describe this for our listeners and for me, since we
3: right now are
2: not face-to-face walking together. Sure.
3: Well, um, the Upper Delaware River Valley, it's considered what's called a riparian landscape, which basically just means um, uh, the, the surrounding areas around a river. It's very... Rich. Uh, there are a lot of, um, there's no old growth because, of course, everything was logged in this area. Um, there was a big industry to cut down all the trees and send them down for shipbuilding and to build New York City and so forth. But we do have some very big pines. Those are the apex tree, the eastern white pine in this area. A lot of hemlocks that have regrown and many, many beautiful types of trees birch, oak, beech. Um, American hornbeam, cherry trees, Um, there's a a great, great diversity, because of course, one of the wonderful things that we learn from nature is that it's entirely dependent on this incredible diversity of organisms, which are all interconnected. And we are one of those organisms. And, um, you know, you can venture out into the woods. And as you become acquainted with the ecosystem you'll learn to identify imbalances for instance we have a lot of the hay scented fern in our woods and fields in this area and while they're very lovely many times you'll notice that they're a giant monoculture they'll be the only thing growing in the forest and that is a direct consequence of the imbalance of deer that we have because the hay scented fern is not um, a favorite of the deer and they leave it behind favoring instead a lot of woodland plants and ephemerals that we kind of wish we had more of. You know, when you go out, you'll see a lot of what people call invasive plants as well, plants that didn't really originate in this country, but came over over hundreds of years, some more recently, Many of them that thrive here are from Asia because our climates are similar. And so we have the Japanese knotweed that, you know, lines the Delaware up here. And we have a Japanese barberry and Asian bittersweet and all kinds of things that people get all panties in a twist about because they're not supposed to be here. But I like to think that the, um, the invasive plant dialogue that we have in this country quite mirrors the one that we have about immigrants um, that we have a very short window into our total ecology. I mean, what we'll be here, what, 80 years or something? 100 years? That's nothing. We don't really know what the impact of these plants is, and we don't really understand evolution per se. And um, we're not really the arbiters, you know? A lot of the plants are here because we brought them over. Some of them are here on purpose because they were beautiful ornamentals. Some came over by accident on ships and in plains, and brought by people. And nature sorts it all out. It's all happening. It's all good. Um, well, it's
2: fascinating you mentioned the Japanese knotweed, because I know that that has been used in uh, Lyme treatment for people who, who are struggling with that infection so that's kind of a fascinating thing because we certainly have that as an issue in this region and then there's also the knotweed that's it's readily available
3: yes and certainly the same is true with the barberry that has a berberine in the roots that's also very good for Lyme so while it's a bush whose rounded shape and creates a humid environment that's preferred by ticks the root also offers up a medicine that's good for fighting Lyme
2: that's really very fascinating. So you're describing humanity as really very temporary in this natural world, right? As a, a part of it, we're we're all connected and a part of it, but also there's so much that's unknown and that we as human beings don't understand, if I'm
3: understanding you. I think that we have this um, this unfounded or wrongly founded notion that we are at the center of the universe. And I think that in this time of the pandemic, there's been an increasing awareness that we are really not in control and that we have to understand more the ways in which we are interconnected. I mean, these viruses are unleashed in areas where we are deforesting, killing wildlife, strip mining in these sort of border areas that perhaps we really shouldn't be crossing into or creating the imbalances that we are. And one of the effects is that these viruses are unleashed upon us. Um, so it's just a time for some serious contemplation, I think. And I think many people have had the time and space to reflect more deeply about our role and The fact that we're not actually at the center of the universe and in control as I think we've felt we were for a couple hundred years, maybe. I'm just curious other mirrors or
2: analogies that you're discovering as you go deeper into your education with the natural world.
3: Yeah. Thank you for bringing up that very interesting topic because what I've found is that There is a metaphor or an analogy in nature for virtually everything. You can go into the forest with any problem and find your solution there. You are witness to the entire cycle of life and death constantly going on around you. I remember being on a walk and a woman pointed down at the ground where the beautiful silvery bark of a birch tree had fallen onto the forest floor and was in the process of decaying. And she said to me, you know, I look at that and I feel okay about getting older. And I knew exactly what she meant. I mean, nature is such a judgment-free zone. Nobody cares in the woods how much you weigh, what's in your bank account. The birds don't care if you color your hair. No squirrel's going to ask you where you bought those boots. All those trappings that we bring to life fall away. And it's really just you truly in your natural state. And there you, as you begin to become the witness, the observer to really learn how to see, to open your eyes and stop seeing a sea of green and instead focus on each individual plant, each tiny bug, you know, I once came across um, some aphids on a milkweed plant, and I became very upset thinking that the aphids were somehow compromising the plant. And I was, my friend and I were actually trying to get, brush the aphids off the milkweed. And then I went home and did some research, and I found out that in fact the aphids on the milkweed attract ants, and these ants actually farm the aphids. Because the aphids produce a kind of nectar that the ants find delicious. And none of it affects the milkweed adversely. So there's these colonies of aphids. They're kept by ants almost in the same way that we would tend sheep or something for the milk. They get this honeydew nectar that they produce. And so there's so many little symbioses and partnerships and collaborations happening in the natural world. You know, the more that we discover about the mycelium, the fungal network that underpins the entire forest floor and how that acts as a communication network, allowing trees even across species to communicate and to transfer nutrients to one another. You know, you understand greater concepts like collaboration and selflessness, altruism, acceptance, resilience, All of these things become alive and deeply palpable when you're in nature.
2: Incredible. There's something so extraordinary, right? It it creates uh, awe to be witness and to participate, to allow ourselves to participate in this world, as you say, to observe very specifically.
3: It's so, uh, I want this so badly for other people. This joy This sense of wonder, this feeling of acceptance and comfort, this return to something so deeply primal, the sense of belonging. I mean, it's, I can't really say enough about it.
2: You began to describe some of the diversity of trees in this region, in the region where you live, in the Sullivan County Catskills and the upper Delaware River Valley region, what are some of the other plants that are there you're describing also symbiosis relationships that this world this natural world expresses
3: yeah i'll tell you about some of my favorite friends so i mentioned yes (laughs) milkweed uh which is a wonderful beautiful plant it's edible and it's many of its stages for us um, it exudes a, a milky latex, which is how it gets its common name. That latex actually helps the monarch butterfly have a successful life cycle. What happens is that the, the butterfly lays its eggs on the milkweed plant, and when the caterpillars are born, they eat the leaves and ingest the toxic latex that's in these leaves, and that renders them toxic to predators so it's sort of a survival strategy for them. I like to eat the shoots in early spring, and then the flower heads are like little tiny broccolis that you can eat in the early summer, and then the flower heads open and make these beautiful, fragrant, pink pom-pom flowers, and I love to ferment those for a wild, kind of a wild kombucha that I make, and then the flowers die back, and the seed pods uh, form and they're like little tiny okra pods that you can fry and eat so the plant has to be cooked in order to be edible because of the latex that it contains but it's a wonderful support to all kinds of pollinators it's a beautiful plant uh, and it thrives in sunny meadows here um, there's a lot of medicinal plants I mean a- almost all plants are medicinal they have uh, wonderful properties you know I, I don't like to encourage people to think of plants only as something that they can use. Do you know what I mean? I think we really have to understand how plants function in the, in the ecosystem in order to I understand. I think that's how
2: the- very important, actually. I'm glad you're bringing that up because otherwise it just becomes about uh, more consumption.
3: Exactly. So one of the things I say to people that come on my walks is that nature is not a retail boutique. And we really are trained in this very consumerist attitude. I totally understand that. I mean, that's kind of how I was when I went out into the woods looking for wild mushrooms, right? I was like, I want something free for dinner. You know, that's okay. As things come into greater focus and we get a, a bigger understanding of what's really going on, then we, and we see, you know, no, you wouldn't go into a meadow and harvest all of the milkweed because the monarch butterflies and the other pollinators need some. So you take a little bit for what you need. And learning to how to redefine that is, is part of learning how to be part of nature. So there's St. John's wort, um, Hypericum perforatum, which is a, a beautiful meadow plant that's growing now, usually at the edges of fields. It's got a bright little sunny yellow flower that sticks up, beckoning you to it. And um, if you rub those little flower heads and the buds between your fingers, You'll see they turn a deep maroon color. It's uh, full of this antioxidant-rich substance. And St. John's Wort is infused in oil, makes a wonderful topical for bruises and bumps. It's great for nerve pain. It helps. It's very healing. Um, people probably recognize it as something that's been touted as an antidepressant i generally use it as a topical some people even use it as a sunscreen although for other people it can cause a sun sensitivity so you kind of have to figure out where you where you are on that spectrum another one of my thank you, f- laura yes thank you for sharing
2: this it's amazing my my mind is going to uh seeing some of these plants that you're describing in our area uh So thank you, but uh, please continue. Yes.
3: Well, you'll have to tell me, you know, when to stop because I can go on and on. (laughs) Well, I do want to make sure
2: that we do discuss also what's happening now in terms of protections for the environment, because this is something that you, I know are concerned with and, and also have been engaged locally with with protecting the environment.
3: Yeah, well, yeah, thanks for bringing that up. Today especially was a bad day um, as the Trump administration decided to overturn six decades of protection for the Arctic National Wildlife Refuge, which is our largest remaining stretch of wilderness. And it was just another in a long, long series of blows that have been dealt the environment by this administration. There are about 100 environmental rollbacks that have happened. About almost 70 of them are confirmed, and about 30 more are still in progress. Those are to deal with air pollution and emissions. They're to do with wildlife preservation, um, drilling and extraction, all that kind of stuff. So mainly what I really wanted to say is that people need to, if not become activists, then at least vote. And, you know, with our voting in this democracy, hopefully, nature willing, we'll be able to have an impact on this kind of terrible devastation that's being wreaked on our planet.
2: Yes. Thank you for sharing that with the Outside Institute, where you are the founding naturalist. You say it's a labor of love. You invite people to go into the wilds to experience it, to be able to understand how they are a part of it. Now, during the pandemic, if you or the people that you you invite to join you are focusing in a way differently, has something shifted or do you see this as possibly some sort of portal, perhaps, into deeper understanding?
3: A lot of people are up here from the city um, seeking refuge, either buying homes, renting homes in their weekend places full time. And there's a lot of people wanting to know they've witnessed the change of seasons. They've been here, uh, you know, a much greater concentration of time than is customary for them. And so I think that so many people have said to me, wow, there's so many more birds this year. There's so many more of this. There's so many more of that. I'm like, actually, I think it's the same amount. You're just noticing them. <laughs> yes. So it's been a pleasure to lead private walks for people. I'm not seeing people in quite the same way. But those that I have seen and, you know, I am doing, I do a series of video tutorials on Instagram to share plant knowledge so people can still be learning from me that way. And of course we have our field guides. So hopefully those are a support to people who are trying to identify plants in this region. But, you know, as I said before, I do think there's an increased awareness. There's a heightened desire to connect with nature to learn more about nature, to be more in nature. You know, there's just countless studies and so much research that's been done to conclusively prove that time spent in nature is healing. It lowers stress, it lowers cortisol, it improves mood, it enhances sleep, yada, yada, yada. Do we really need studies to tell us what we already feel, you know, innately? Um Although, you know, there are some people, as I mentioned before, who have a level of discomfort about going out in the natural world. There's fear of ticks, there's fear of bears, there's lots of fears. And I understand that, you know, we're not really comfortable because we we've lost that connection. And so I think a lot of people are trying to get it back now. I, I hope I fervently hope it's a portal into another era I think we're ready for it. I think we need it. Um, You know, one can hope. You mentioned some
2: of your favorites. I mean, you began talking about fungi, mushrooms, uh, foraging for them. Uh, What are some of the names of your favorites that you might find if you opened your door and began a
3: walk? Well, in, you know, mushrooms are quite seasonal, and they're very dependent on weather. They like uh, just the right temperature and the right amount of water, and they, bright, they love moss and rotten trees, and, you know, different mushrooms love different things. But here we are in uh, mid-August, and, for instance, last week I found black trumpet mushrooms, which are a kind of chanterelle, which are my very favorites, so that was wonderful. Uh, you can still be finding chicken of the woods mushrooms right now. Oyster mushrooms, the summer oysters have been fruiting. And there's lots of boletes at this time of year. Boletes are the mushrooms that have pores, not gills. They're uh, like porcini. Some of them are very delicious. Some of them are poisonous. Some of them stain blue. Some of them are sticky candy apple red. Some of them are bright yellow. There are so many boletes that there's um, an entire Facebook page just dedicated to identification of boletes and many websites too.
2: And this is a very
3: high-risk
2: venture, actually,
3: isn't it? If you're going
2: out foraging for mushrooms. I mean, this is something where you really have to have
3: education. Yes, for all plants. There are toxic plants that can kill you as well. So uh, you have to remember the forager's adage, when in doubt, throw it out. And only ingest something that you are 100% certain. But the good news is that, um, you know, the, the the choicest wild mushrooms are um, pretty easy to identify and have very few toxic lookalikes. So um, with a, a little bit of study and maybe a mentor and or a very good field guide, you'll you'll be far from danger and is there something when
2: you head out into the natural world that you are most excited to see you've mentioned milkweed and saint john's ward and some of the the mushrooms and the fungi i'm just wondering if there's just something it could be an animal a plant but that for you is that awe-filled moment
3: i really couldn't choose a single thing Um, I'm filled with awe whenever I step out into the woods. Um, I saw a fungus fruiting on top of another fungus the other day that I'd never seen before. That was a miracle. I saw a snake eating a frog that filled me with awe. Um, I, I saw a porcupine underneath a pine tree and uh, the porcupine was waddling away from me. I saw it from the back and I realized... It looked exactly like pine needles. And then I realized like, is that why it's called porcupine? Every day I'm I'm thinking of different things and in, in awe of what I see. This is just wonderful. I
2: look forward to a time when we can go out into this natural world together, but it's so delightful and uh, very beautiful and actually Uh, there's also a kind of a heartbreak to it as well because of certain threats to this natural world. But being able to share with you some of your knowledge is really very special. Is there anything else you'd like to share with us?
3: I just want to encourage people to be courageous and go out. If you're afraid of bears or ticks or whatever, you know, Find out the best ways to deal with those fears, be prepared, be aware, take several friends, but don't be deterred. Always go outside, be in nature, and be in touch with your own true nature.
2: Thank you so much. My guest is Laura Chavez Silverman, who is the founding naturalist from the Outside Institute, you can find out more by going to theoutsideinstitute.org. And it's just been really very special to speak with you,
3: Laura. It's been my pleasure. Thank you, Sabrina.
2: You're welcome. From the kitchen table, out on the road, I'm Sabrina Artel. Thanks for joining me for Sabrina Artel's Trailer Talk. The music for the show, Patti Smith, People Have the Power. Trailer Talk is produced by Sabrina Artel. For more information, please visit TrailerTalk.net. Special thanks to WJFF Radio Catskill and the numerous people who have donated their time, resources, and conversations to make Trailer Talk possible. Thank you all who joined me in these conversations. I'm Sabrina Artel. Safe travels. Hi, I'm Nina
1: Totenberg. Are you someone who talks about how great public radio is, but you're still not a donor? Rather than wait for the next pledge drive, you can support the programs you love by donating that unwanted vehicle. It could be worth hundreds of dollars to this station, and you could get a tax deduction. Or you could just give us hundreds of dollars directly. We'd like that a lot. And thank you.
0: Go to wjffradio.org and donate right now
1: you're listening to radio catskill public radio for the catskills and northeast pennsylvania wjff jeffersonville river to river mountain to mountain radio catskill Support comes from the Law Office of John Ferrara in Monticello, providing legal services in the areas of matrimonial and family law and criminal defense. John.Ferrara557 at gmail.com.
0: Support comes from The Vintage House on Main Street, Jeffersonville, featuring eclectic furnishings, clothing, antiques, records, and books in a charming 19th century house. VintageHouseJVille.com and on Instagram at VintageHouseJVille. Oh,